0: I'm Bridget Stomberg. And I'm Lisa Simone, And this is Taxes for the Masses. Today's episode is on how states tax corporations and how that affects their business decisions. In the past 15 years, more than a
1: dozen states have fundamentally changed the way they tax corporations that do business in their states. The trend toward what's called combined or unitary taxation has caught on internationally as well playing a role in proposed international tax reform. In today's episode, we break down what unitary taxation is and how it differs from the current system. We also highlight recent academic research into the implications of the change for corporate decision-making.
0: Hello, Bee. Hello, Lisa. I have to say, I am super excited to be talking about how U.S. states tax corporations today.
1: And I got to say my reaction to hearing the phrase unitary taxation is usually not (laughs) excitement. Okay. So I personally find it painful. I think painful is the word that I would use to describe unitary taxation.
0: Why are you using, why are you saying that it's interesting? Why are you excited? Um, Because I, when I talk to people about how states tax corporations it blows their freaking minds Agreed. how complicated it is. All right. So uh, let's uh, blow our listeners' minds. Let's do it. All right. First things first, though. We already have talked about state taxes on some previous episodes. And on those, we mostly focused on how individual taxpayers who live in one state and work in another get taxed. And there are some similarities to how states tax corporations in that they're only going to tax a corporation that has a sufficient level of economic activity or what we call nexus in their state.
1: So the trick here is that when you and I do something, it's obvious to know where we're earning our income, right? We're sitting in a place, we're doing our job, we're earning our income. When you're talking about a business, it's a lot harder to figure out what amount of their activity in each state is contributing to their income. Exactly. So we've got formulary apportionment. Mm-hmm. And for our listeners who have not yet fallen asleep or hit the pause button, we're going to talk about what formulary apportionment is. Mm-hmm. So formulary apportionment is a simplified way of determining how much of a corporation's income each state should get to tax. So like we just said, you can't really observe how much income Amazon earned in Texas, California, Oregon. So you kind of have to guess. You kind of have to come up with a heuristic or a simple way to estimate how much income the business earned in each state. hmm So to do so, each state is going to apportion that corporation's total income between all of the states the corporation operates in using a formula. And I hope you can see we're apportioning using a formula. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: We're calling it formulary apportionment. Catchy. Now, the simplest formula apportions income based on the percentage of total sales that a company earns in a particular state. But sales aren't the only thing that go into income generation, right? We also have to Mm -hmm. think about things like labor and capital, So there are some states that can also consider how much payroll or property you have in that state as well. And I think I hear an example coming on. Because there's no other way to explain formulary apportionment. (laughs) All right, so let's say Google's parent alphabet has activities in California and Oregon and has $1,000 of taxable income in total. Its sales are split evenly between California and Oregon. If California bases its apportionment on sales alone, then 50% of its sales... And therefore, 50% of that
0: taxable income, Mm -hmm. or $500, is going to get taxed in California. And ideally, all states would have that same apportionment formula, in which case each dollar of corporate income would only be taxed by a single state. But unfortunately, each state gets to come up with its own apportionment formula, regardless of what other states do. Exactly. So if Oregon wants to tax based not just on its
1: share of Alphabet's sales, but also on its share of payroll or property, then the amount of taxable income that Alphabet has to report in Oregon could be more or less than $500. And that's when we start to blow people's minds because Mm -hmm. it actually means that the corporation may have some dollars of income that are untaxed or taxed by both states.
0: Right, and what makes it even more complicated, because this wasn't complicated enough already, is how states think about defining Alphabet Corporation. Because Alphabet is just a parent company that owns a whole bunch of other corporations, right? You think of Google, obviously, mm-hmm. but they also have Nest. They've got Waymo. They've got Google Fiber. That's where I get my internet. All of these are very likely separate legal entities all under the umbrella of Alphabet. Even more complicated, some of those companies might have activities in California and Oregon, but some may not. Exactly. Historically, states would only tax those subsidiaries with nexus, that level of economic activity, in their state. This is called separate entity taxation because each separate subsidiary was treated as a separate potential taxpayer. If one subsidiary had nexus in California, but the others didn't, the apportionment formula would only apply to the income of the subsidiary that did have nexus. All right. So something that I'm not sure that you've
1: heard about. I'm not usually aware of things that you're not, but this might be a case. Corporations don't like to pay tax. Mm, I had heard that once or twice, yes. Spoiled. Anyway, so some corporations got smart and would try to shift income to subsidiaries in low or no tax states and shift deductions or losses to subsidiaries in higher tax states. Now, states didn't take this lying down. They got wise to the game. And over the last 20 years, there's been a big shift to this combined or unitary taxation among U.S. states. Because under combined reporting, even if just one subsidiary has nexus in California, in most cases, all subsidiaries of the group are going to get included in the calculations of how much income gets apportioned to California.
0: And this action on the part of the states should be effective. Think about it. If Alphabet had been shifting all sorts of income into a low-tax state like Wyoming, under separate reporting, California and Oregon could not touch that income. Right. But if those states switch to combined or unitary reporting, now all of that income that had been shifted into Wyoming is included in the amount of income apportioned to California and Oregon.
1: Exactly. So combined reporting can really basically negate the benefits of trying to shift income out of high-tax California and into low-tax Wyoming.
0: But when you implement a tax policy to try to change one particular taxpayer behavior, um, sometimes, just sometimes, sometimes. There might possibly be other consequences. And this is what gives rise to that old
1: adage, tax policy rarely shuts one door without opening an even bigger door that leads to an unexpected outcome. True dad. Our guest today is Anthony Welsh, a doctoral student in accounting at the University of Texas at Austin. Anthony spent six years as a state and local tax advisor at ENY prior to entering the PhD program and primarily studies the real and fiscal effects of multi state taxation. Anthony will graduate in the coming academic year and look for a position as a faculty member. He is here today to talk about his dissertation, which examines the effects of the shift to combined state taxation
0: on corporate risk taking. So, Anthony, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you for having me. This is this is. Uh, I'm excited to do this, and pleasure is all mine.
0: Your dissertation is
1: looking at how a shift towards unitary or combined reporting affects corporate risk taking. Yes, that's correct. So, can you? I guess a good place to start would be telling us a little bit about why corporate risk taking is important.
0: Yeah, risk sometimes has negative connotations. Is this something that we want?
2: Yeah, no, that's a good question. So, there's there's a pretty longstanding literature that shows corporate risk-taking can actually help facilitate long-run firm and economic growth. A simple way to think about this is that you have these companies like Amazon or, you know, these high-tech companies that engage in a lot of, say, research and development to try to create new technologies Mm -hmm. and to maybe expand their operations into different segments or different regions that, you know, it takes a little bit of risks. There is there's some uncertainty as to whether some of these projects will pay off and the extent to which they'll pay off. Sure. You know, if if a company like Amazon has no incentive uh, to take a risk or Apple has no incentive to take a risk, you may not get the next iPhone.
0: Yeah, it's pretty hard to imagine life right now without an it, iPhone. It's so easy to take it for granted, yeah. right? And
1: so, Anthony, I'm I'm glad you brought up those two companies as an example because there was a big risk that they were taking on and that mm-hmm. there's ways that tax policy can actually incentivize people to take on those risks, which we want, like you said, from an economic perspective. So at least when I think about how taxes can influence corporate risk taking, I tend to think of loss sharing, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's one reason why we have net operating loss carrybacks and carry forwards. So if you take a big risk, you lose a ton of money, um, you're going to get to get some kind of tax benefit out of that in the future when you turn profitable. So why did you think um, that combined taxation could actually be another lever that state governments could pull uh, to influence corporate risk-taking.
2: You know, there's a couple of reasons to think combined reporting could increase or decrease risk-taking, but perhaps the most obvious one is this kind of loss-sharing mechanism or feature that you're thinking of. And what combined reporting does is the losses of one entity can then offset uh, the taxable profits of another entity in that same period. You know, under the separate reporting scenario, each entity can typically only receive the benefit of generating a loss once they earn sufficient taxable profits some point in the future, depending on the state's carry forward rules. Some states have carry back rules, but those are generally pretty limited. Plus, under combined reporting, because the entities' incomes and losses are combined regardless of where they operate, Mm -hmm. the losses of entities that operate outside of the jurisdiction... Uh, can then be used to offset profits of entities in the jurisdiction. So you kind of have this expanded ability to use losses, which could, um, incentivize this risk taking. If we think of risk taking as going after projects that could potentially have either a large loss or a large payoff. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it makes those projects a little bit more desirable as the government becomes a more equal partner in, in the firm's activities.
0: Mm. So you also have some reasons in your paper why you may not find an increase in corporate risk-taking amongst firms that are doing business in unitary states.
2: So one reason that it might actually decrease risk-taking is it may incentivize firms to want to invest in projects or acquire entities that have either uncorrelated or maybe negatively correlated returns. And... uh, Therefore, the net return on average is maybe a little bit more certain or less risky. Mm-hmm. So you may not see as big of a swing in income from year to year uh, if you're kind of diversifying all across the economy or in different industries.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's that's kind of similar to the way we think about diversifying our investment portfolio, right?
2: Yep, that's right. The other reason that combined reporting might reduce firms' risk taking is uh, the you know the primary purpose of combined reporting is to. Uh, minimize or basically eliminate income shifting opportunities for companies, and many you know tax motivated income shifting opportunities involve uh, high profit margin assets such as intangible property like patents. To the extent that those those patents or intangible property are produced from riskier forms of investment such as exploratory R and D, uh, once combined reporting is enacted, it basically reduces the after tax payoffs of producing. Uh, the, that type of intangible property or patent. So it may actually disincentivize these riskier forms of investment.
1: How did you actually go about testing uh, your research question and your hypotheses?
2: What I really want to get at is, you know, identifying some firm that gets affected by a combined reporting law change and compare risk-taking before and after that law risk-taking of some control firm that is not affected by that law. Mm-hmm. And what that means is I kind of have to identify where firms are doing business. And the best way I was able to do that was there's this data set out there that basically has each U.S. establishment and it, it kind of tracks uh, where businesses are operating over time for the past 20 plus years. Um, so I'm able to go and look at where each business has an establishment Ideally, what you would do is look at, you know, the expected return to different projects and look at whether firms are changing investment decisions based on uh, their, the expected returns, but that's not really observable. So what we do is we look at return volatility. So realized returns, how that changes year over year. And then I compare, you know, my measures of risk taking between these treated and control firms and, and see what the outcome is.
0: And what is that outcome?
2: So basically I find that uh, firms increase risk taking after combined reporting goes into effect. And that's relative to, to these control firms.
1: And so other than that main finding, what are some of the big takeaways of your study? And I think one of the things I'm particularly interested in is if a state legislature came to you as they so Mm -hmm. often do, right? Yep. All the time. All the time. We're just beating, beating them, beating them away. Um, and said, you know, Anthony, we are considering moving towards combined unitary reporting in our state. Should we do this? What would you tell them?
2: (laughs) I tell them that's a decision you need to make for yourself, given all Deflect. Of the flex.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I like it.
0: <laughs>
2: yeah. No, I mean, answering that type of question is always difficult. Um, some of the things you want to look at from a policymaker's perspective is what's the effect on tax revenues? And that could be different depending on the state. So in my study, I actually find that it seems like states with higher tax rates seem to get more of a benefit from a revenue perspective, mm. uh, from these, from these law changes and, I think you would probably expect that if you think about, you know, higher tax rate states are likely the states where firms are shifting income out of. Mm-hmm. So once that income shifting loophole, so to speak, is closed, uh, states should see an increase in revenues. The other thing to consider here, which which is kind of interesting, is states do enact this primarily to reduce income shifting. And the reason we even care about that, uh, not only does it potentially erode government tax bases, but... It arguably gives a competitive advantage to these larger multi-state businesses mm-hmm. relative to their smaller firms. I think that can be true. Although what I kind of show in my study is this loss offset rule, uh, seems to increase risk taking. And mm-hmm. to the extent risk taking is going to be beneficial for that firm to kind of develop new technologies or just, you know, have long run growth. Uh, that particular feature seems to actually benefit these large multi-state firms. Probably more than these single in state firms that don't have this loss offset feature of, of having multiple entities. Mm. It's, you know, going to be somewhat relevant for, for state tax policymakers or just other, you know, governments trying to assess the effect of certain anti income shifting policies on, on corporate investment and the types of corporate investment that, that may change. And, you know, I think we see this not only at the state level, but also the international level where, you know, the OECD G20 is trying to tax. A portion of certain multinationals consolidated profits. Uh, the EU recently proposed a plan to consolidate profits and losses of, uh, firms EU activity and then kind of allocate them among EU member states. Obviously, there's differences between the, the US setting and the international setting, but, um, you know, bringing this, this type of research question and, and results to, uh, these policymakers awareness, I think, uh, should hopefully, you know, bring a new element to this discussion about what the trade-offs might be when you implement a rule like this.
1: So you worked in uh, state and local tax advising for several years before getting your PhD. Are you, Do you think your results are consistent with your real-world experience as a state and local tax advisor?
2: Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think anytime you do uh, this type of research, you want to Kind of think about whether this is a real thing in the real world that, that people think about and care about. So I can tell you from uh, my experience, which was mainly doing state and local tax compliance and consulting, uh, combined reporting was a big issue that, that we talked about with firms. And it could have, you know, pretty significant effects on what the firm's tax liability would be in a given state. You know, when, when companies are thinking about how different types of investments can generate expected after tax returns Mm -hmm. and combined reporting, obviously, you know, changes that calculation for certain firms, uh, so that you know when they're um, trying to assess which projects to invest in, the after-tax return calculation becomes a little bit different. Mm-hmm.
1: I like the way you explain that because it's not necessarily that anybody is sitting around saying, "Oh, the state just became combined; let's do more risk-taking." It's that right. that is an input to the company's marginal tax rate, and the marginal tax rate is getting fed into the decision-making process and calculating after-tax return. So, it, yeah, it's definitely, definitely feasible. So tell us a
0: little bit about your dream job.
2: I mean, I think a big thing for me is kind of trying to assess where would be the best fit in terms of, you know, the people I would be working with, the resources at that school. Um, I think just, you know, getting along with your colleagues and being able to toss around ideas and, and work on new projects. And mm-hmm. I'm excited and also a little nervous, but again, just kind of working on focusing on what I can control. And that's, that's all you can do. Thank you guys so much for for having me. This has been a lot of fun, so uh, I appreciate it.
1: It will offer you no tangible benefits other than practice talking about your dissertation, but happy to do it.
0: It's time for the good, the bad. And the ugly. Well, the easy goody
1: today was talking to your PhD student about his dissertation.
0: Aw. And another good thing about this episode, I think, is the takeaways of the paper. Uh, One of them being that there's a potentially unforeseen consequence of this shift by states to unitary taxation. But this time, the unintended consequence is actually a good thing, and that's not usually the case. No, not always the case. Usually, we're talking about really
1: bad consequences from, shall we say, bonehead tax policies that should have been foreseen but weren't. Right. Here, states get to curb income shifting, which is good for them, while also stimulating corporate risk taking and potentially innovation, which could also be good for them. So it's
0: kind of a win-win. And that's really important to know, not just here in the states, but also in the context of some of those international proposals that are going to move the world a little bit closer to unitary taxation. Totally.
1: Most of our listeners might be familiar with the proposed global minimum tax that was hypothetically agreed to by over 130 countries in the summer of 2021. Hypothetically, yes. And that's actually just one of two pillars of global reform being discussed by the OECD and the G20. Pillar one will take a portion of combined corporate profits and apportion it to countries based on sales.
0: Exactly. So here, Anthony's work highlights a potential pro of moving towards combined taxation internationally, which is good because the EU is even closer to taxing corporations on a combined basis, given a proposal that they're working on that Anthony mentioned. But there's also a bad side to these international developments. I was really sitting here just wondering how long you were going to be able to sit on your hands while while we talked about only good things. I'm kind of curious. This may be the longest we've ever dwelled on the good before.
1: I think it might be, yeah. So let's stop getting hives. Okay. All right. So well, there there may be some reasons to love the shift towards unitary taxation, but there, you know, there's reasons to hate it as well. For example, anytime you give a corporation a formula mm. that dictates how their income is going to be taxed, you're also giving them a way to work to figure out how to manipulate the formula.
0: That's so true. Um and just because we have unitary taxation in a bunch of US states doesn't mean that firms suddenly stopped all of their tax shenanigans and income shifting across U.S. states, given these different rules and the different apportionment formulas used by different states that corporations could manipulate to their benefit.
1: And that brings us to the ugly. It is well known that the different rules across states, whether combined or separate reporting or using different apportionment factors, leads to double taxation and also double non-taxation. And that just
0: raises the question of why there isn't more uniformity across states because our country was founded on the notion of states' rights. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, Each state gets to tax however it chooses. Now, there have been some proposals to try to clean up some of these issues of mismatched rules across states, but it's never gotten enough support to pass. Shocker.
1: All right. Well, then I guess there's a theme here because the chances that those international reforms we were talking about, like the global minimum tax, are
0: going to get passed in the U.S. are dwindling given upcoming midterms. And if the U.S. isn't able to sign on to some of these international agreements, they may lose some steam. So stay tuned on that front. Well, that's
1: all we have time for today. Be sure to join us for more tax nerdery on future episodes of Taxes for the Masses.